Xi Jinping is a failed governance reformer, despite his three volumes of collected works. Why does he govern like he's running out of time? What would a financial crisis or succession challenge mean for the CCP? Dan Rosen is a founding partner and my boss at the Rhodium Group. Jude Blanchett is a fellow at CSIS, the author of the fantastic China's New Red Guards and co-author of the After Xi Report. I talked with Richard McGregor on the podcast a few weeks back. We're going to be talking about Jude and Dan's recent pieces, which nicely echo each other, that were published earlier this month in Foreign Affairs. So, Dan, why was 1978 to, say, the mid-2000s the easy part for Chinese reform? Okay, step one to make yourself look great is spend 30 years immiserating and impoverishing your country down to the point where in 1978, Chinese per capita income was about like a quarter of what Nicaragua's was. (laughs) Profoundly bad things were being done to the economy at that time. And so really, step one, they just had to stop (laughs) doing the wrong things and let at first peasants really make the decisions about for example, what to plant, what would grow in their part of the country and not be told by political officials what they should be planting, even if it made no sense for their province. So that was a huge tailwind. There was zero capital deployed anywhere in the country. So any money invested was going to have a high return, basically. The demographic dividend was at its peak. The number of people in the workforce was getting higher and higher relative to the then one-child policy kicking in 1978 as well. Fewer young people, mouths to be feed, fed, unproductive folks in the population structure. So all those things really worked in China's advantage for decades. Jude, let, fast forward to 2013. Why did she feel like he had to govern like he was running out of time? If I can rephrase the question slightly, <laughs> I would say, why did she govern with a sense of urgency? which is distinct from running out of time. I think that's the clear thread, especially in retrospect now. We can see that right out of the gate, starting in 2012 and when he assumed the presidency in 2013, he moved with a speed and aggressiveness, which caught many by surprise and really took us four or five years to figure out the direction. You had some early indications that she was moving in a, aggressively in a pro-market reform direction with the third plenum decision, which Dan talks about in his piece. But also on the international stage, you had moves like the creation of AIIB. You had the announcement of the then called the One Belt, One Road initiative. This wasn't clearly at the time an individual who was going to be pushing a much more statist approach. The heartier question, though, which is why urgency? I think there's a few reasons for this. Number one, and this is now at this point a cliche amongst the China watching community, The Communist Party was not in great shape when Xi Jinping came to power in late 2012. You had a whole host of internal organizational disciplinary pathologies that that had been accumulating over the previous decade, which by the time Xi came to power felt, if not existential, at, at least significant cancers in the body party that needed to be removed. And then I think critically was it it wasn't just about rectifying the party. I think Xi Jinping saw an important moment for China in the international order that needed to be taken advantage of. And this was being provoked by observable changes in uh, the U.S. coming off of the, the global financial crisis. And I think she assessed that, look, there is a almost the 21st century global order 
built around critical and emerging technologies and the opportunity to shape standards and digital infrastructure offer an important opportunity for China. So these needed to be taken advantage of. So it wasn't just a sort of crouching posture of defeating existential concerns to the party. I think it was also an offensive move to to start rebuilding China's aggregate global power. Uh, Dan, why don't you talk about the the macroeconomic situation and what drove the really aggressive agenda that was laid out in the third plenum? Yeah, I, and I love Jude's list of motivating factors. There was one. There was only one that wasn't in his list, and I, I wondered whether he thought it was a factor. I remember John Garneau back in the early days of evaluating Xi Jinping's behavior, saying that somehow claiming to have gotten access to an internal speech he had given, where he said, "Guys, if we don't push back on these hostile foreign forces and Jasmine Revolution, all this kind of stuff, we're going to end up like Mubarak in a cage in a courtroom." And so that was motivating. They didn't want to be Gaddafi in a ditch. And that adds to the list. I think the economics in the early days, I don't think she felt that he was running out of time. I thought I think he thought he had time, but that there was important work to be done. And the 2013 60 Decisions program you put on the table, it struck me as confident. It didn't strike me as somebody who was desperate about the economic situation, but someone who felt like they understood what the laundry list of things that needed to be done was, and with surprising coherence and boldness, laid it all out in black and white and said, read my lips. (laughs) We're going to do this stuff by 2020. So I I would first set the scene by saying that while politically, I I had a feeling that there was a, a little bit of sense of if not panic, remember the whole Boshi lie and craziness of those that, that period. On the economic side, I was struck by the sort of confidence and decisiveness, really, and more making the market more decisive right, was their language, in fact. We can get into some of what the specifics were that were prioritized uh, from 2013 forward, but I think it's interesting to note that at a kind of higher level, on the economic side, they felt like time was on their side and they were going to be able to get things on track. Dan, so you argue that, in fact, she is a failed reformer. What were some of the instances where you saw him going two steps forward only to fall two steps back? Aristotle asked, can you call a man happy before he dies? Because you never know what's going to happen. And so with she... Maybe it's early days in his tenure, (laughs) and we've got another 15 or so. Who knows? So maybe it's too soon to say he's a failed reformer. Just bad first couple innings. Uh, I don't know. I'll leave that to Jude to talk about his political lifespan. So many things that were, as I said, clearly laid out in black and white. Read our lips. We're going to do this stuff. And then it just didn't work out the way that was hoped. And just starting right from 2013, some examples, clear diagnosis that there was that the crazy amount of that the counter cyclical stimulus, if you will, classic Keynesian response. Nick Lardy called it the gold standard of response to a financial crisis from the global financial crisis. China had been throwing so much credit at the problem from 2009 forward that was continuing to be thrown at the economy in 2013 as he took the full helm. And they understood he and Lioja, his chosen economic conciliary understood that had to stop. (laughs) Otherwise, it was going to squander some of China's credibility, 
as a sound financial system, etc. And so right from 2013, they set their sights on the risky interbank market and they instruct the People's Bank or go with the People's Bank's advice to start withholding credit from these riskier financial institutions, not the banks themselves, but the non-banks. And they do that starting in May 2013, almost instantly causes short-term interest rates to go from 2% up to as high as 30% in a matter of days. The stock market falls by 10%. They lose their stomach for this fight. They realize they're not entirely prepared to follow through, and they fall back to allowing credit to keep flowing. That's one example. Another example, by early 2014, Lo Jiwei, then head of the finance ministry, is given approval for his proposal to do a broad program of tax reform that would see the introduction of property taxes that would both better fund what government needed to be spending money on, but happily would also de-incentivize over-investment in property, which to today has really become a very acute problem. They were supposed to get that plan done by 2016. It's 2021 and a half, and it's not even out of the starting gates. Lodgeway Way himself, now retired, flagged that earlier this year as a major problem hanging over China. And third, given Didi in the news, even last week and this week, one of the signature 2013 reforms was to tell the China Securities Regulatory Commission, the CSRC, to stop holding up listing applications and let companies go to IPO. If we're going to tell the banks and the non-banks to stop throwing credit around like there's no tomorrow, then we have to give companies an alternative form of way to raise capital, and that was to be the stock market, which is an attribute of modernism. It's like a comparator for how caught up with the West China is today. And they did. They had 48 IPOs in less than a year and another 28 queued up to go. But along with that came a bubble in the equity market, too much Pollyannish ideas about letting people borrow money on margin at their brokerages, throw it into the stock market, you can never lose. And this created bubble conditions, which again, reversed, caused the government to panic about the equity market reforms in 2015. And even today, in 2021, the stock market has not reattained 2015 levels. Jude, it seems like the sort of two steps forward, two steps back framework doesn't necessarily apply as directly to, say, the anti-corruption initiative. Good question. I think when I was just listening to Dan, I was thinking about the importance here of clear definitions of success for measuring sticks. When you get into the political realm, it's difficult. I can almost imagine parallel measuring sticks where I'm finding things on Xi's own terms to be successful, but then when I pull out the national measuring stick, I find them to have set China back in important ways. And so you could take something like pain, which undoubtedly on a certain set of metrics has cleaned up the more overt forms of corruption, which were engendering significant amounts of frustration and hostility among the Chinese people. Didn't eradicate it, but certainly... Uh, down on some of the more sort of egregious examples of it. But on the other hand, even by the reckoning of China's own internal discipline watchdog, CCDI, it has led to a number of of G's in the incentive structure for cadres 
which then the answer is a Xi Jinping version of more cowbell. You then go out and do another round of inspection, discipline inspections, looking for behavior that is trying to, you know, prevent previous disciplinary investigations. And so I think if we're looking at the yardstick, it's more difficult to do in the political realm than the economic realm. But I think there's a parallel story here where in the governance realm that without a doubt, many of Xi's campaigns have moved the needle as he would have wanted them to, especially if you're thinking about the, the personalization of power. But if you're thinking about the effectiveness and the functioning of China's overall governance system, I think most people who watch this are pretty concerned that the secret sauce on the governance side matching Dan's story on the economic side over three or four decades was an imperfect but a decently aligned incentive structure wherein cadres, yes, they were getting corrupt, but were experimental, were flexible, were open to foreign capital, would take risks. And all of that is, I don't want to say is not gone away, but if you listen carefully, you don't hear that sound as much. Sky's still high, still far away. I don't want to pretend like Xi Jinping is is Sauron, but certainly that is something I think we need to be we need to be watching for. So I have a mixed diagnosis similar to Dan's on I think in many ways Xi Jinping is a failed governance reformer, despite his three volumes of collected works. One of the following questions that naturally comes from me like, did she fail at reform? And if so, then does that cause a crisis, an, an economic crisis? And I'd say the really the party up until mid she years was really most notable for embracing crises. And another word for crises is adjustment, right? It's what happens when the old way of doing something no longer works and you go through a difficult uh, phase change where things that were previously productive no longer are, and it's a mess for a little while as you make the jump to doing things differently. And it was precisely because Deng Xiaoping and, and many others embraced that and went with it rather than trying to fight against it, that China was able to unleash so much productivity and growth over the past 50 years. The stability fetish is a very new phenomenon. I want to talk about one of the exceptions to the narrative. Environmental reform, I think, is if we can chalk up anything to decisive Beijing-driven leadership. The changes that you've seen in the past 10 years in pollution around the country are really dramatic. What, why did this policy area prove to be the except of the general rule here? Certainly, I'm not arguing that um, China under Xi has stopped doing anything right and has been a complete... Indeed, even I would admit, Dan, the economic front, it's not as if you had these six or seven pushes on reform and then the, and then it stops. I think there's important areas, especially around finance, where smart tactical moves to open up sectors to foreign capital. And I, I, and I think even in what I would call economic macro policy, like supply side structural reform, eradicate overcapacity? No. But do, do we see, I think, a step down from levels of accumulation and overcapacity that were existing prior to 2015? You know, debt deleveraging isn't a, a runaway success story, but I think it's notable to me that uh, I would have expected a massive opening of the credit spigots in response to COVID-19 that I think Beijing was was trying to hold the line on. So I think there's, so my point being is, I think it's not as if everything is a failure and environment stands out. And then the second point is, absolutely, right? If you look at some of the aggregate PM 2.5 data across the country, important innovations. And indeed, if you just look at where China is targeting a lot of this state cap right now, it's into green tech, which I think waste aside is a use of 
uh, a promising use to capital that's better than a lot of the other uh, ways that they could be using it. But to not fight the, to give a, a, a quick answer here, I think this does get to this interesting idea of where the party is responsive to demands of the people outside of the normal democratic feedback mechanisms we have. I think there's an assumption that the party can just give the middle finger to, to most Chinese people, and it uses elements of coercion and control as a way of you know, reaching escape velocity from popular demands. But of course, the reality is the party is always balancing those two. And there are few areas that have provoked as much intense and very narrow public frustration than up of issues about your health and the ecosystem that sustains it. Water, food, air pollution, these are all issues that over the past 10 to years have become acute, acute focus for Chinese citizens, as you would naturally expect. And so I think the level of frustration there has been so channeled and so specific. And then final point is also contingent outside of the more structural story here. And I think there's an argument to be made, but not often I pat the US government on the back, if the really ad hoc decision just blasting out PM 2.5 on its then, you know, Weibo and Twitter account, I'm not sure we would have had that same early level of urgency. So there's some contingent factors here as well, in addition to, I think, just it was getting so bad and the awareness was growing, aided by ICT, to where people were now using images of the country. And of course, you had a few of these very pronounced big scandals around infant formula that I think just have to recognize. In addition to corruption, base levels of growth that provide qualitative improvements are, are necessary. I'd add two things to the, that, this part of the conversation. Number one, over these 10 years, 2010, say, to 2020, there has been a tremendous growth of the services sector of the Chinese economy, right? It's part of being at middle income level. And so just thanks to that, environmental impact slash over GDP as a ratio is getting less bad just because the less carbon intensive, pollution intensive parts of an economy are the things that are growing somewhat more at the margin compared to the very industrial growth of the 2000s of the first decade. Just looking at it from the numbers objectively, you can tell a story that says that the marginal environmental nastiness of the Chinese economic system is getting less bad. That is true. However, can we really audit the actual absolute levels of pollution impacts in China? Is it permissible for for supply chain auditors to go looking at even environmental impacts, let alone other things that are more sensitive today? If China is having this great success environment, they really should allow more sort of liberal interrogation of that story to help prove the, the point. But we data is not as easy to come by today as it was 10 years ago. And just on the face of it, that leaves me a little bit you know, skeptical about the environmental story that we tell as well. Dan, you write that at some point, China's leaders must confront this trade-off. Sustainable economic efficiency and political omnipotence do not go hand in. Why? Really? How would a more liberal governance structure had saved the banking system or some of the sort of financial reforms that you were pointing at earlier, which she had such a hard time over the past 10 years implementing? I guess the simplest answer is that because unproductive choices are recognized and reversed soon. 
That's just what happens in a non-authoritarian environment. Jordan, a lot of your podcasts focus on, for example, recently DARPA and how should the U.S. government be more productive in 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 how they support innovation and stuff like that. Isn't doesn't it all come down to fail fast? Takes take lots of chances, but if they're not working out, have some mechanism that causes you to shut down the things that aren't really getting you anywhere so that those resources can be moved over to something that still has a chance. Those mechanisms don't really exist in more authoritarian system because they require admitting mistakes along the way, accepting that you're fallible, accepting that political authorities are not necessarily particularly good at allocating resources, and that you need some other mechanisms to decide when it's time to pull the plug on the life support system. And that's just it's just not happening. We talk about zombie companies. We talk about the amount of rolled over debt that is evergreened, another term. And that's a problem for productivity and for growth. Um, Jude, is she running out of time on Taiwan? I think we need to unpack that a little bit. How might she feel running out of time? You can imagine a few different scenarios. One would be looking at trend lines. Beijing has long thought it has a time is on its side and it can afford to be patient because ultimately it felt the trend lines were moving in its direction on Taiwan. And that story, I think, was largely true until about, I don't know, 2016 or so when you had the election of DPP President Tsai Ing-wen, but you had increased economic integration between Taiwan and China, which China has always understood that one of its greatest geopolitical assets is its market and access to it. You also had for uh, for a good chunk of time, the KMT was in power, and that's when you saw the warming of relations. But, and this again, maybe there's a theme here in our discussion about Uh, And I always forget if it's snatching victory from the jaws of defeat or the other way around. But Xi Jinping own goaling himself by essentially misstepping and creating the prerequisites for his own future failure. And undoubtedly, events of the past year and a half with, first of all, the swift and I think irreversible Hong Kong with the national security law and the recent electoral system got it. has if any dwindling support on for any vision of reunification Xi Jinping has just gone and you know uh, squeezed the last uh, uh, breath out of that which of course creates a self-fulfilling prophecy here where uh, uh, increase you know poll numbers on Taiwan show vanishingly thin support for any type of reunification it also uh, again remember Tsai was not before the the January election of last year you know, for the previous year, she was not doing well in the uh, in in the election polling until uh, China really made that move against Hong Kong. So you've now helped marginalize the KMT, um, further install the DPP or entrench the DPP, alienate public opinion. So that is it. You can imagine that scenario where Xi Jinping feels like time is running out of his side. But in all of these analyses that China or Xi Jinping is getting an itchy trigger finger or even, frankly, comments coming out of the outgoing head of Indopaycom, Phil Davidson, that there was a six-year period. All of that analysis has had this kind of fill-in-the-blanks component of how the Xi administration would be considering this really extraordinary action of launching a military uh, campaign against to take and hold Taiwan. 
And although I may think Xi Jinping has a sense of urgency, I don't think he's suicidal. And you'd have to have a full spectrum analysis of how would Xi Jinping be thinking about a invasion against Taiwan relative to all of the other goals that uh, Xi has for China and that Beijing has for China. That include diplomatic goals, economic goals, domestic economic goals. All of that would be uh, at risk if China were going to uh, launch an invasion. And although we call it strategic, I think most military planners in Beijing bake in that the United States would likely have involvement. So um, I look at all of that, and again, although I think Xi Jinping has a very, very high risk tolerance, a theme here of why he's pulled back from uh, economic reform time and time again, and motivating a lot of his governance reforms is preservation of power for Xi and the Communist Party. I don't think he forgets all of that and launches an invasion 100 miles off his shore. Yeah, no, it's interesting comparing to Donald Rumsfeld passed away recently and thinking about the the Pentagon not thinking through what was supposed what was going to happen in in Iraq after Baghdad fell. And if you think that's bad, not doing the second order consequences of invading a country where Japan and the U.S. very may very well may come on the side of intervene in their favor is a practice order that I don't well, think I, that I don't think she plays in. Can I add to that? I think there's another big difference of kind of go with look war planners and political planners. Uh, folly is not uncommon when thinking about uh, military adventures from governments. And certainly, I think, as a counterargument, if we're making an argument here that as she becomes more consolidated and ensconced, imagine more and more isolation, poor and poor information getting up uh, up into she. So uh, miscalculations are certainly going to be possible. And indeed, over time, you would imagine that military adventurism could become a possibility with an isolated Xi Jinping. But what I was going to say is, if you thought you were going that way, I was going to say, it's one thing for the Pentagon to plan a misadventure several thousand miles away in an area where they understand that the repercussions for the homeland are going to be minimal. I think it's quite a different matter when you're 100 miles off your shore. And you would have seen the Pentagon going through a very different exercise if it was thinking about invading Canada. Yeah. It also comes back to like, what motivated Japan in 1941? Like Hitler felt like Hitler felt like the clock was running out on him, and he was being encircled, and the end was nigh. And there's a very like the amount of quote unquote encirclement which China feels when there's like a few sanctions on Huawei and semiconductor exports is so far beyond what was facing Tokyo in in in, in 1941, where they were about to be cut off from oil. And there is, I think, a strain within the CCP of, you wrote, like, the paranoid style of CCP politics where everyone's out to get you. But we are still a very long way from Beijing feeling so cornered that it has to reach out beyond its borders to secure resources or, or regain, regain prestige. Let me put an asterisk on that. Since 1994, China has been a net oil, crude oil importer, Okay for example. When Deng Xiaoping set out on reform in 77, 78, made those plans, he honestly believed that China was going to be the next Saudi Arabia because the oil oil major, some oil majors had convinced him of that, thanks to the Shengli and Daqing fields and their potential. And he truly believed, this is a fascinating part of the reform history, that he was going to be able to finance the entirety of China's technology modernization with oil revenues. And it didn't work out 
quite that it made a big contribution to the national coffers, but by the early 90s even, that had turned a corner and China started to become a net importer. Fast forward to today, other than in brown coal and rare earths and zinc and a few other things, China is net dependent on global sources of supply for virtually every other hard and soft commodity. It is a net calorie importer for food, for feeding itself, more for indirectly for, for oil seeds and feedstock for, for pigs and livestock, for cooking oils and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and that's never going to change. Given China's endowments of arable land and the demographic trends before it, China will, whether it manages to export consumer electronics to the world or not, will always need its bauxite and its met coal and its calories from the world. So we think about a slowing growth rate and some of the consequences of them uh, for them of not getting the economics. And they're not quite as in the catbird seat in the out years in terms of their needs from the world as some people seem to think, maybe as you seem to think. Dan, I think you got to get on the solar and vertical farming hype trains here. Do you, wait? you can do that for your, yeah, you can do that for your kilowatts, but not as a feedstock to make plastics and all sorts of other industrial things that still need oil for those purposes. So we'll see. Yeah, fair enough point, but we'll see. I, I, just adding on Dan's point, I think this is another frustration I have with how we're thinking about China. I don't feel like many of us have a really dynamic view that is thinking about 10 years out. And if, as just a, for a sort of like epistemological humility here, I, I don't think any of us in, on the eve of Xi Jinping are in a good position to say we're China years out. And gosh, is it different, really significantly different. Not only the, the orientation of economic policymakers, I think the relationship between the Communist Party and society and the relationship between China and the world and I understand the, the inclination now where, unfortunately, the, what I liked living in Beijing because I didn't feel like there was a political angle to discussions on China. It was really just a empirical discussions where maybe you'd agree, maybe you'd disagree, but you weren't in a camp. Here in D.C., I feel there's an underlying agenda or something you're trying to push back against in terms of how you interpret them. So it, it leads to, I think, this sorting mechanism. Trying to split the difference on that, I think Dan gets to some really great questions in thinking about how putting these pieces together, let's imagine six, seven, eight years out, we've had not a crash in growth, but we've had this kind of long, soft fall continues. Let's imagine that some of these massive investments in what they're hoping to be TFP, you know, boosting technologies, these don't quite pay the dividend they want. And so they're still in this first search for productivity led, which this, you know, and a good chunk of state capital on few hits, but but more Sputniks, or sorry, maybe a few Sputniks, but more waste than not. And you now have Xi, who is well into his third, maybe going into his fourth term, who is exhibiting some sort of late-age dictator behaviors, which we've seen again and again. I don't feel so sure that things are just going to be a, a normal linear trajectory from our mental map of where China has been over the past four decades. And while I don't pretend to say it's going to go gallivanting across. It's going to invade Russia to go get their oil. I also think the fairly flat linear trajectory narrative we have of, oh, yeah, this last decade will be a little bit like this decade doesn't fit that reality. And I don't pretend I have the answers, but I think there's a really good maybe this is a CSIS Rhodium project. I feel like there's a really good China 2030 or China 2035 
project to be done of scenario planning on like bringing in all these elements on the elite political, the structural and, and contingency economic factors, the geopolitical environment and technology trends and pulling these together and imagining where China could be in, uh, in, in 10 years, because just a massive question mark to me in a way that it's not with the United States. I feel much, much now and can imagine the kind of muddle through path we'll have to get us through 2030. But China is now, it's like the Bitcoin of political system. Are you a funder <laughs> with a high five or, or six figure dollar count interested in reading that report? <laughs> if so, reach out to me, me Dan, or Jude, <laughs> and we'll set it up. We'll make it happen. Seamless, Jordan. That was a really great segue. I wanted to say, I thought the Sputnik analogy was actually interesting. I've been spending a lot of time reading about space in the past few months, and Sputnik freaked out America, was a big propaganda success, but ultimately, Soviet Union lost the space race, and the Sputnik was created doing these technological shortcuts, which ultimately ended up really handicapping the Soviet Union space effort. So the analogy may be more apt than than you were initially intending, Jude, in that the sort of like, when she tells Lioha, your job is to figure out third generation semiconductor technology, and you have three years to do it. Like that is not necessarily creating the type of incentive structure where he can come back and say, no, this is a 20 year project. And we need to get high schoolers like more Raspberry Pi boards or something, as opposed to we're going to swing for the moon and like almost certainly fail. Well, add something to that, Jordan. I think again, this is where ticks and economic policy come together. My old boss at the conference board, David Hoffman, used to call this as under Xi, China's viscosity trap, which is every initiative has to be bigger than the last one. And just when you were talking about the Leo Hub project conductors, I think that's a it's a good example. There's a fine line between the push needed to channel resources, tension to get big breakthroughs. There's a fine line between that and illusional beliefs that you can take a vice premier who, by the way, already has a lot of things on his plate. His only thing is not being now that semiconductors are, you know, he's managing the economic relationship with the United States. And if you track who travels with Xi Jinping? He's on inspection tours every other day with Xi Jinping to, you know, chill. No, it, it is very Trumpian of just we're gonna have this one guy and he's gonna be mixer and I trust him. Not he's not literally in the family, but like they've been working together for a long time. Now. But but this is the point. I mean, I guess the point I want to make to try to to piggyback on Dan's insights in the piece is what I think is likely going to happen is. Big push mobilizational and expectations that technology, those are going to be the new fixes instead of the hard institutional reforms that China needs to make. So I think there's going to be lots of issues where she is going to say, we need a, you, Leo, you're in charge of this. Go get me this. Need a big push on this. Or we're going to see him hope that robots are going to solve demographic or workforce challenges. Because I think that is easier than what she has, building off Dan's insights, has shown himself very clearly listening to some of his economic planners about what needs to be done, but then very quick to reverse course when it feels like the reform is starting to undermine political stability. And so he's going to look for workarounds to institutional fix. And I think what we know is almost all of these issues aren't going to get a robust aid to fix them. It's going to take deep structural fixtures. I don't know if, if folks haven't read Scott Rizel's work on 
Invisible China about the human capital environment, you start to see how this hard, unsexy stuff that's going to be required about primary school education, job training. And I fear that's not alluring enough for Xi Jinping and that's not quick enough for him. And then you can see how that just leads you to more of the same and more more muddling. There's been a, a tussle over whether China should be embracing our reform in the way we mean it when we talk about it here, because it almost seems that that would somehow at this point be a capitulation to American preferences or the non-Chinese point of view. But reform, precisely as we mean it, is China's modern birthright as well. No country really can claim a more admirable, bold, and prodigious, productive track record of getting major liberalizations done than China between 19, between 1978 and you know, 2015 even. Into the Xi years, I think this is the main thrust that I was trying to convey in the piece, she was not resistant to the idea that there needed to be corporate governance reform at state-owned enterprises, that independent boards of directors needed to replace the role that party committees were playing, right, up until about midway through his tenure thus far. And it wasn't that he necessarily changed his mind, maybe he didn't, but we can see that his attempts to put those new systems in place for a new era were not working the way they were advertised to him by his economic team, no doubt. And he was frustrated, annoyed, and, and probably disconcerted to observe how much potential social instability was being, was being introduced by these imperfectly implemented, executed reform initiatives, right? If he needs, when he finally comes back to it, he will be able to point to his own record of of putting down in black and white a fairly clear and bold call to arms to get liberalization work done in the economic lane, in the economic lane. And he can work with that ultimately. Let's just hope that uh, that uh, he doesn't evince those older gentlemen uh, autocrat tendencies that Jude was referring to. Dan, I was going to say, I, I wonder if there's a book to be written 10 years from now on how the 12 months from end of summer 2015 to 16, end of summer 2016, was the kind of decisive year in the Xi administration where you saw a real important inflection shift and the real Xi model emerge. Because as you were talking about tolerance for you know corporate governance in SOEs, it was 2015, 2016 that suddenly you saw, because I was at the conference board in Beijing then, it was probably early 2016, suddenly you saw companies coming to us and saying, hey, our Chinese JV partner just handed us this note requesting we revise our article of association to give the party committee a du jour role in the corporate governance structure. That's when you started to see SOEs doing the same in their revising the association down in Hong Kong if they were enlisted down there. So the governance inflection point was 2016. Meg Rithmeyer at Harvard Business School, who's doing awesome work on evolutions in Chinese state capitalism, paints this picture of a real fundamental shift of state capital after the equity market meltdown in 2015, where the national champions who stepped up never stepped back and just evolved their role to now becoming investors in everything, right? So taking little equity nibbles across the entire economy, oftentimes just a single percentage point. But nonetheless, now you have Central Huijin and others 
with investments everywhere. 2016 was also the year that Xi Jinping was chosen as the core. And I remember being in Beijing the night that came out. And I remember being at a, a, a table with a bunch of business executives. And it was the moment they, I think myself as well, realized, hey, so this is who we're dealing with now. And of course, 2016 is you have Brexit and finally Trump. But that sort of one year period feels, and I think, I think the equity market meltdown had such enduring long tail impacts on, on regulatory policy after that. And that was, you also had these critical political shifts domestically. I don't know, the timing may be not quite scientific on that, but I feel you kind of have this pre late 2015, 2016, and then post, right? And everything that happens post, really, I can trace back, you know, to that, to that really, that, that sort of important 12 or 13 month period. I'll read the book, write it. I think it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of raw material available to work with to, to put that thesis together. I think it does make some sense. At the same time, there, there are many elements that weave into that where the, the thread had been what was starting to get twisted together before then, that were external factors that were in the mix in terms of the external environment, the sort of exhaustion of the WTO phase-in period that sort of allowed for a grace period, if you will. And so it was inevitable. And then also the sort of pure competitor aspect of how far China had gotten in terms of its technological advancement had now reached a a point where it was going to be it was going to be treated differently. I'm now fixated on this idea of the 12 months that made modern (laughs) China. This is a direct rhodium connection here. 2016 was the year you had that massive spike in outbound investment, which had pretty significant ricochet effects domestically in China. The subsequent crackdown on the big, the HNAs, the Anbangs. Also, that's year within 2016, a couple of those Syngenta and ChemChina uh, deal and the, the, uh, the KUKA transaction, that's what really started uh, Europe's wake up on China. So there's a kind of a geopolitical element as well that, that were it not for probably that very overt surge in outbound FDI, especially into some of these sort of critical and emerging or national security technologies, I'm not sure it would have taken longer on the European side. Because right after that, they started talking about the need for EU investment screening mechanism. And then here in the United States, it was a little bit like, I don't know if you, certainly everyone's watched Die Hard, where you know it takes place at the Nakatomi Towers. Um, you know, that's, there was this vibe in America of you now had these Chinese companies buying, you know, bowling alleys and, and hotels and AMC. So I think there was a, 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 a kind of a spook. Yeah. And, and final thing, and then I'll shut up, Jordan, because this is your podcast. That was the year where the China Shock papers came out by Gordon Hansen, 2016, which really you know, galvanized the China discussion here in the United States. It's not my show. It's the listener's show. You guys are what make it happen. We're doing a new segment because I don't really get a lot of iTunes reviews. I'm reading every single new iTunes review. Good content, annoying voice. Interesting guests and good content, but the host's nasally voice is unbearable. Four stars. You know, the guy gave me four stars. I can't really complain. If you say something which does not have racial or ethnic slurs in it and put a review on iTunes, I will read it at the end of the next podcast. Dan and Jude, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Hold
这个巨龙的锻造，懂得办到，懂得接到暗示的 back out，back out，back out。创造，格林与不断的创造，百年的历史才刚刚破晓。哇，要有谁能阻挡我？ Yeah，Let's，Go，Let's，Go，Let's，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let，Go，Let